0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, folk singer Melanie Safka on her Lifetime Achievement Award nomination at the International Folk Music Festival. That's coming up on
1: Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host.
0: Well, hi there. Happy Sunday. And welcome to another episode of Endeavors. If this is your first experience, welcome. If you are a regular or semi-regular listener, thank you. And... Welcome back. Woodstock 1969. To this day, it still remains one of the largest and most iconic festivals of all time. One could argue that it is responsible for the modern summer festival experience everybody played it Woodstock although many such as Bob Dylan turned it down but it had Hendrix the band Crosby Stills Nash and Young, Ravi Shankar, Jefferson Airplane, Janice Joplin on four nights at mass Max Yasker's Dairy Farm All of those names are iconic in their own right. And there was one artist there whose career blew up because of her performance. And that was Melanie Safka, who's commonly known as Melanie. One of three solo female acts to perform there. The others were Joplin and Joan Baez. So not a bad group of people to be in. Her rain-soaked performance inspired one of her biggest hits, Lay Down, Candles in the Rain, which she recorded with the Edwin Hawkins singers, who had just reached the national top 10 the previous year with their great gospel hit, Oh Happy Day. She also found success with her composition, What Have They Done to My Song, Ma, her version of The Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday, and perhaps her biggest hit, Brand New Key, which at the time was banned by a number of radio stations for its perceived sexual innuendo, and then found new life uh, as part of the soundtrack to the great 90s film Boogie Nights. I mentioned Woodstock being sort of the, the granddaddy of, of all festivals. And for a few years after that, Melanie was all over festivals. She appeared at the ill-fated Powder Ridge Rock Festival. In fact, she was the only person to perform. She then went to uh, Ontario, Bowmanville, and performed at Strawberry Fields. Went over to England to do the Isle of Wight, Afton Down, which had a larger crowd than Woodstock, uh, some say up to 800,000. Uh, It also featured, according to Melanie, one of the last major performances of Jimi Hendrix. And in 1971, she performed at Glastonbury Fire, which was the first year that the Glastonbury Festival was known by that name. She has also received an Emmy Award for her work on the theme song to the 80s TV show Beauty and the Beast, which starred... Everyone's favorite anti-hero, Ron Perlman, and Terminator's Linda Hamilton. By the way, there was also a writer on that show by the name of George R.R. R. Martin. Melanie was recently nominated for a Lifetime Achievement Awards in advance of the 2021 International folk music awards this is me and melanie safka how how are uh, how are things down in nashville with with everything uh, going on
1: i don't know i don't i haven't been out too much here um i've been doing you know shows and interviews and connecting to the world out there that way right now but i'm I'm good and I'm not you know crazy yet or anything <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know I can't swear to that you know you have to have other people tell you whether you are or not
0: <laughs> fair enough you know a, a lot of musicians have been you know a, adapting to the virtual life and in and, 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 and virtual concerts how how have you found that lifestyle?
1: Um, well, I just began I did my first one um a week or so ago and um it you know hey you know people aren't in front of you it's very difficult to pick up the momentum but you know i believe in the force so i um i got there you know i finally got in the zone i think but uh, you know it, it it's a lot different and i i definitely connect with my audience in a very real way, you know, so I sort of, you know, have a a communication, it's a two way communication, I don't, you know, usually stand up and just sing a bunch of songs and say thank you very much or have a spiel. So it's, uh, it happens. And when it's virtual, there's less happening except through screen and I don't want to be looking over at a screen to see what people are saying and um, I said it was kind of like a uh, virtual heckling because people say things they may not have said it while you were singing but it's coming in as you're singing so it's like virtual hecklers.
0: <laughs> First of all I guess I should say congratulations because you've been nominated um, for a lifetime achievement award uh, at the uh international folk uh folk music uh, uh, awards right you know, and artists that i've talked to they you know they always have a an interesting <laughs> rela- re- relationship with awards you know because it, that's obviously not why we as artists get into it but something like a life ch- time achievement is is different than everything else how how does at least, you know, how does even being considered for for an award for your lifetime's work feel to you?
1: Yeah, uh-huh. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. I, um, it, it sort of feels like you must be about to die. <laughs> because just a lifetime means you've had it already, you know, so. Um, and I, I I, sort of, I I worked so much, and you know, I was always so busy that, um, you know, I, re- Never really realized that I was getting old. <laughs> no. So when when I got nominated, I was glad that I wasn't in the, um, the legacy um, c- category because those are the people who are already gone. So I'm still in the living, which is nice. And, um, you know, hey, awards are important to people. Um, for me, I've never really been in it for an award because there's so much that goes into it politically and who you know and who you don't and who you made enemies with and who you didn't. And uh, me being an independent, I've always been um, a maverick really. So, uh, you know, there were no independent artists. When I started, I was the first, uh, well, first female for sure, to ever open a a record label. And that flew in the face of um, the, standard music business and uh, because at that time there were um, you know there were record labels and they were headed by I was assigned to CBS by uh, a music person he knew how to play piano he knew how to orchestrate he was a musical person and that's was usually the name of the game you know people in where they were exceptional musically inclined business people but uh that heralded in that 1968 67 68 um a new sort of precedent where lawyers were in charge of the music business so um that didn't sit well with me you know i am um, anyway i was always a bit of a renegade and um i started my own label. <laughs> and uh, that didn't, that didn't sit really well with um. And I know it's sort of, people don't say corporate anymore, but corporate <laughs> things, you know, but, um, you know, those entities that were conglomerates, and they ran parking lots and owned radio stations. And there was a, a politic in the music industry that just didn't sit well with me but I I did really well with my own label we had hits and I recorded a lot of people um Peter and I my husband we were really active and it was a lot of fun while it lasted (laughs) um I didn't realize there were there were things going against me that I didn't I didn't look at I didn't know about so um that was pretty short lived, although we had I think four or five albums on that label, and so I um now uh so getting awards wasn't like something I expected throughout the um years in the music business. I it's pretty amazing really that I didn't get um a Grammy or because I had I had two top hit records in the top ten. At one time, which was a precedent, you know, and I wrote the songs and I sang them, and it was. But I was um, kind of uh, well. I think Chris Novoselic of the of Nirvana said it best. He said, "I was in carefully airbrushed out of history." <laughs> That's what he said. So, you know, that is what it is. And to get an, a nomination for an award is, is a great honor. And I hope I win <laughs> it'll be nice because people again are they're very impressed with statistics I did win a, an Emmy so um they can preface my name with Emmy award <laughs> and then everybody looks up oh oh she must be good <laughs> or something you know but uh, anyway I mean I don't do it for awards but it would be really nice you
0: know the it's it's incredible It can be very difficult to have long-standing sustained success in in the music business. Although sometimes I find solo artists uh, have a better odds at that. But what do you think, uh, as someone who has had a very long successful career, what do you think are the ingredients for lifetime success in this industry? Um, I
1: guess I didn't. I didn't look at what was successful you know um I think that'll kill you you know if you if you're looking for what you should be doing because other people are doing it and having hits especially now that it is so controlled you know the industry is is so controlled by uh, money you know they they put tremendous amounts of money into a record or a, an artist and they don't have to wonder as they did in the 60s and maybe even early 70s whether that artist will be a success. They create the artist to be a success. It will be a success and you will like it no matter what because it will be everywhere. And that's that. You know, familiarity is an amazing um, tool for uh, promoting a success. Of course, you need. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to I don't know about those numbers. You hear numbers like four trillion and 26 million billion. And I, you know, I'd have, how do you count that? You know, how do you even count that? But um, so, so they create success um, with a particular musician or artist, you know, and they create it and they can uncreate it. So I would suggest somebody who wants to do it because they love it. If you want to do it because you want to have a lot of people looking at you, take off your clothes. You know, That's all I can say. But um, if you really want to do it and create music that people will will affect people and, and have a positive effect, uh, then you have to listen to who you are and probably stay away from what you think is the formula For success but again if that's if your motive is to be look at me look at me then just you better pay attention to what those entities who create success want
0: you 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 mentioned earlier you know uh you know i guess corporate you know the 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 corporate aspect of music you know and now that everything's online and you know kids are creating you know Music on their on their phones, on their computers, on the laptops, and everything streaming. How how different do you think it is to be in in the music business today versus back then? And how do you think you would fare if you were, you know, twenty two in, in in today's world?
1: Um, I'm sure you know I would have figured it out, and maybe I would have had. Um, uh, well, let me get to part one of your question. <laughs> not how I would do I don't know how I would do but um, how there's so much available technology you can have you can buy programs that will give you a track an entire track and, and then you can just put words to it or three words to it or 25 words it doesn't really matter people mostly aren't delving into the deeper meaning of your lyric these days but um, you can create incredible records um, not being very able you know as far as musically talented or anything just because mommy and daddy gave you a a bunch of stuff you know and uh, or you went and had a job and you did it but the point is uh, it's there's it's the motive you know it's um I, and I get I hate to go back to this because it sounds like oh that old lady what does she know but um it's it's true if you want to make music to um to be famous or to be a celebrity I, I mean I hear of so many people who are celebrities and I don't know what they do you know I I just kind of wonder like I oh I've seen that face and I heard that name is that a singer is a an actress or is that just somebody who died their hair green and they're a fashion model I don't know you know but um it's that's a different motivation and I think it's kind of obvious in the product that they create but um a tr- for a person who truly wants to express their little universe um which is the only reason really to do Art or music, or is to let people in on a, a your particular universe. Now, if you believe in the world according to a one intelligence, you know that. Then I'm I'm speaking a different language, you know. But uh, I, I truly think there's still arts and artists in the world who want to create and have their work appreciated
0: for what it is you know, i I, I, I picked the age twenty two because uh, you know that was just older than the age you were when you performed at uh, the age you were when you performed at Woodstock uh, in sixty nine and as as one of only three female solo artists. And you went on right after Ravi Shankar, yeah, um do you do you remember what it was like? when you first set foot on that stage in front of, you know, 500,000 people or whatever it was?
1: I definitely remember. <laughs> um, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was the only, um, Joan Baez was the big, a big famous person. I was uh, just an industry buzz at that point. I did have some success in Europe. I had a hit record in France but um I didn't actually get to you know experience I wasn't a vet- veteran performer let's put it that way and when I went on that stage uh, when I first got to the fields I went on a helicopter and my mother had driven me up to uh, the festival and it was going to be a, called a, a Aquarium Exposition actually and it, it wasn't actually called Woodstock quite I didn't think yet but um, so my mom drove me we get to this hotel we had hit all kinds of traffic and we went um, to this place they said go here because you know there's no cell phones it was very difficult to find out where to go and how to get there because traffic was unbelievable and uh, we got there and this guy saw me in the Hotel lobby, and said, "Melanie, Melanie, get to the helicopter." And I started jogging along, and my, and my mother was jogging along, and we got to the entrance of the helicopter. And he said uh, to my me, "Who who is this?" And I said, oh, it's my mom." You know, I didn't, I didn't even have the savvy to say, you know, she's my roadie or something. <laughs> and um, he said, "Oh." Oh, no, Mom. Sorry, Mom. Bye, Mom. Uh, This is only for performers and musicians or something. And so I said goodbye to my mother. And I get into the helicopter now. Uh, Again, I hadn't performed in front of maybe more than 500 people in my life. And I was only um, me and my guitar. And I wasn't a great guitarist. I knew three chords. And I I did a lot with them. I implied a whole hell of a lot, but you know, that's what I was armed with. And again, I'm not a veteran, not, you know, easy on my feet up in front of people in the first place, but this wasn't just people, this was 500,000 of them. And uh, as I descended the field, I assumed because I heard Richie Havens and I figured I'm on next. So that's why I had to get there fast or something. But that wasn't the case. And all day, someone would come up and say, you're on next. And then they'd say, never mind. <laughs> no, And then all you know, the time kept going by and it became nighttime and it got later. And then it started to rain. And I remembered something uh, that the announcer, I think it was Chipmunk, uh, said about Hog Farm, which was a collective is passing out um, candles to keep the rain away or something like that. And um, I absorbed it. You know, I didn't write it down, and I certainly didn't think I'm going to make a song about candles in the rain, but I I absorbed it. And at that point, when it had started to rain, I really believed that people would go home and that I wouldn't... um, actually have to do this and I could go back to life as it was and I was I had been in England for the year that preceded Woodstock so I hadn't heard any of the you know any hype or anything about it and uh, I just knew that I was doing it because at that point a year before we were in the same office building as um, as uh, some of the people who were putting the festival on. And I just got on it. I don't even know exactly how, but, you know, it seemed like a good fit. So it's going to be a nice little picnic you know, with people and arts and crafts and stuff. So I didn't think any more of it. In fact, I almost didn't come back to do it as I was in the midst of doing um, writing a film score and uh, and the Rolling Stones were in the studio next door, and it was the London Philharmonic were playing on my record, and I, uh, it was pretty amazing. So, that that was where I was in that headspace, you know. So when I got, um, I'm, I'm I'm praying that I don't have to do this. I was certain that, you know, people were going to throw things at me. I, I they didn't know who I was. I mean, everyone there was a famous person, you know. And, um, and here I was again, I, I just didn't feel like I was adequate. And um, the terror that m- mounted in me was beyond description, truly. Because, and because it was over a period of hours and hours, and I was alone in a, a tent with a dirt floor and a box, that I had all this pent up emotion and terror. And, but when the rain started to rain, I really did feel like it, it was a reprieve and that I was given another few years to live. And um, as I, after Ravi Shankara they, they came in and said, you're next. And um, I think I had, I think there was a group of the incredible string band I always loved the incredible string and uh, funny enough, I later signed them to the label (laughs) neighborhood records. That was later, but anyway, I had never met them. I didn't meet anybody famous at um, Woodstock. The only um, close encounter I had was at that hotel when I saw Jonas Joplin and Sly Stone and uh, I had never met a famous person before, you know, um, these were legends that were walking by (laughs) and uh, so this time it was for real and I walked out on the stage and I didn't talk about it too much because I noticed that when I spoke about this on radio that mostly it would get edited out but I had an out-of-body experience and again I I didn't do drugs I was an absolute vegetarian purist I didn't want any smoke to enter my lungs and all this so um i was i left my body i actually it went all quiet and uh i i once got to tell this and it was such a realization as i was telling it i just broke down into tears because the emotion of it is so incredible that I, i as i repeat the story it kind of dilutes it a little bit. I I almost don't want to tell about it because it's, it was such a magical thing that I watched myself get on the stage. I watched myself sit down. No sound. I was hovering over my shoulder. I could see myself sitting. I, one point, just boom, I was back. And this happened in front of 500,000 people. You know, so whether they knew it or not, they got to see magic. <laughs> and I always thought that was part of the phenomenon and why I resonated so strongly with a crowd of people who didn't know who I was and were hearing songs for the first time. I had one song that was being played on um, pirate radio and underground radio. in In Europe they had pirate radio because the government didn't approve of certain artists and I was one (laughs) it's crazy it's it's amazing because I don't know what I was singing that would bother people beautiful people but there there is a certain agenda that uh, doesn't want people to really unite you know they'd much rather keep them divided so uh, that's probably where that was coming from and um, it just resonated with the whole crowd and I walked on the stage an unknown person. I walked off the stage a celebrity.
0: You know, you you mentioned the rain and which is why you, you were moved up and Incredible String Band got moved to the to the second day. As as someone who attends a lot of outdoor wait, shows Wait, wait, wait,
1: I'm sorry, what was that?
0: Oh, I, 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 I-, I just read you you were you were mentioning how how you played in the rain and I I read that um you were moved up because Incredible String Band didn't want to play uh, oh that's right. <laughs> in in in, yeah, in, we- in the rainstorm and that's and that's why you got moved up to where you were. Um right. and you know as as someone who has attended a lot of outdoor concerts, I love it when you know when you're when you're watching the the singer or the band whoever it is, maybe the sun's going down and there's you know a, a rain or, or or a light drizzle starts to overtake. I I just really love that feeling. I'm I'm curious for you what rain or or you know, maybe changes in the weather does to you as a performer.
1: Well, it makes you feel like God. <laughs> I mean, you're standing there and it's raining and you're up there orchestrating it or conducting it or something, you know, it, it does. It's just it's very powerful feeling that um, somehow the elements are not going to bother you. You know, you're beyond the elements. So. There, there is a it was an incredible uh exchange with the people who were watching and they were flowing this well of course I got to see the field from way in the back as it, the the candles were being passed out and lit The the candlelight was coming toward me so it was like this surrealistic um image of of fireflies you know coming toward me and and it just I knew that it was the people feeding me this power that, that it's unexplainable and especially for a, a person who wasn't experienced this was the most magical vision that I have okay. so a lot of people are very um are cynical oh that'll never happen again this is good. but I you know I got to see a part of humanity that I don't think everybody has seen. Um, And so, I I mean, I believe in people. I really do. I think um, we are capable of everything that uh, will make the world a better place.
0: Uh, And and of course, you know, performing in the rain in that rainstorm in Fired, your great hit, uh, Lay Down Candles in the Rain, uh, Uh which I actually know charted. Uh, I believe it charted higher in Canada than it did in the U S it, it went to number one here. Um, but you also did that with the Edwin Hawkins singers who had just previously come off of, uh, the great song. Oh, happy day. Um, how, how did they come aboard and how did that whole song come about for you?
1: Yeah, we were, um, we were on the same record label, Buddha records. And, uh, They had this massive hit and I I loved them. I loved that song. I loved all their songs. They had a whole album of hymns and gospel uh, music and I loved their work. And of course I was, you know, just signed to the label and nobody knew who I was. And I said to Peter, my husband, who is the producer, he's been the producer of everything I ever did. And um, I said, wouldn't it be amazing if the Edwin Hawkins singers could do that anthemic part, you know, the lay down, lay down. And and he looked at me and he said, yeah. <laughs> so he contacted Edwin Hawkins and uh, I, get, I was very shy. I, I was such an introvert, you know, that he would do things like call people on the phone and say, oh yeah, Melanie wants to say hello. And I'd glare at him like, leave me alone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you want me to say. So, um, anyway, that's what he did with Edwin Hawkins and Edwin Hawkins said, well, tell me about the song. And I told him that I wrote it. It was very spiritual. Um, you know, he said, well, does it say the Lord in it? I said, mention Jesus? And i well, no, not exactly. Not by name, you know, but, but he's in there <laughs> and, um, so he said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm sure it's a beautiful thing and it would be nice, but we only do religious songs. And and he was he was, you know, very adamant that he wouldn't do it. So I said, oh, okay, thank you. And I gave the phone back to my husband and Peter talked with him a little longer and I don't know what they talked about that my husband had this in his head that we were going to do it. So we went out to, um, we were recording in uh, uh, San Francisco, near San Francisco, and the Edwin Hawkins singers were rehearsing in a school gymnasium down the road. And Peter said, Oh, guess what? Edwin Hawkins wants to hear the song. He wants to do it. I said, Peter, he told me he didn't want to do it. No, 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 they really want to hear it. And I said, okay. So I, uh, you know, walk out with my guitar and I got to the gym and we open the door and they're in the middle of a, a rousing chorus of something. And uh, they, the music stops and everybody looks back like, who the hell is that? <laughs> and... Um, I I I looked at Peter, I said, Peter, you didn't you didn't tell them I was coming, did you? You didn't even tell them I was coming. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Just sing the song, Melanie, sing the song. I know he'll wanna do it. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. Anyway, of course I did it. <laughs> I um I sang. I started singing and uh Edwin Hawkins walks over to Peter and Peter is gesturing wildly with his arms and and the, the choirs up there, you know, tapping their feet. And I was singing for my life. You know? um, and there I was, you know, little white girl with all these fabulous big voices. And um, uh, little by little, they started singing with me. By the second chorus, they were singing. And Edwin Hawkins threw up his hands, said, okay, <laughs> okay. So we did it. We went to the studio that afternoon and we recorded um, Candles in the Rain in one take. It was, it just was a thread that went right from Woodstock right into the studio. People who were there, said they had never experienced anything like this in a studio. And maybe we wouldn't stop. I mean, we kept singing the the end of the, the I think it was like an eight minute record and the the sheer length of it was um well it certainly challenged being on the radio because it was they only played like two and i think the magic number was like 250 two minutes and 50 seconds was the magic number but um you know three minutes was the tops and this was an eight minute record and um it it just was we we just didn't stop you know it was this magic Thing, and we were all together and it was the most beautiful recording experience I had ever had.
0: You know, it, it, it strikes me that I think folk and gospel music actually are, are quite a well-made creative marriage. Uh, I, I know Billy Bragg talks about his love of, of, of gospel music and, and how it inspired him. Do you, do you find musically that, that they actually go well together and
1: there's a lot of similarities? You know, I have a funny thing about music, because I grew up with, uh, my mom's a jazz singer, was a jazz singer, and uh, I grew up with Billie Holiday and Peggy Lee and orchestrated, uh, you know, big band singers as well, and jazz and blues, Bessie Smith, and uh, just all sorts of music. You know, my father played the saxophone, um, although he was much more of a business type and my uncle was a uh, sang labor songs. He was a union organizer and um, between that whole group of people I, I became a very integrated as far as my musical style. And when I was a teenager I discovered uh, Kurt Vile and uh, a Lenya and Edith Piaf and these Shantusi people. And um, so it's just a melding of all these styles. So I never really thought much of, in fact, I, I sort of think it's the curse of the industry is to separate the styles of music, because I think everybody could like all music as long as it's good.
0: On on the uh, on on that same record uh, that candles was on, you it did a very well known cover of Ruby Tuesday, which of course I think was ranked in the top five hundred songs of, of all time. Uh, the Rolling Stones were huge uh, in, in that era. What what made you want to uh, experiment with with a cover song?
1: Well, it was I, again you, you you know even that term cover. It's sort of like you it has it sounds a little like. Um, you know, cover covering uh, like you do something wrong. I don't know. It doesn't have a very positive sound to me. But I I sang um, mostly my own songs. But um, I would hear a song here and there. Like I did a Bob Dylan song, uh, "Lay Lady Lay," and "Mr. Tambourine Man." And when I heard "Ruby Tuesday," I was sure it was me. I was in England. It, uh, they had just released it and I learned it. and I played it on the guitar with all the wrong chords, completely wrong. <laughs> um, in fact, when I started having bands later on, they would try to correct me. You know, I said, Well, no, <laughs> this is the way I do it. And um, I, I never heard from the Rolling Stones. I don't think there was a time that they weren't huge. I mean, they're, they've always been. Right there, you know, so uh, it but my record actually became connected with me to the point where uh, people didn't some people didn't even know that the Rolling Stones wrote it, but um, because you know, it was uh, first of all, it's very different, um, but second of all, because I became so it's became synonymous with Melanie Ruby Tuesday. And so, especially in Europe and England, and uh, I guess somewhat in Canada. But um, so I was connected with that song. Um, it was very powerful. And I felt that that was, um, it was me, you know, it was just somehow that. That title just
0: resonated with me. You know, both that that album came out in, in 1970, and that was a big year for you. You you played all all you know a gamut of festivals, and I know the first one you did in uh, that that summer is sort of I guess as infamous as as Woodstock is is famous, and of course that's the the Power Ridge Rock Festival, um, <laughs> in, yeah, in, in which yeah, you. But- I, I read you were. That didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read that you were the only artist that sort of defied this this injunction, and you your your set was powered by uh, Mr. Softy, uh, yes. uh, ice I, ice cream trucks, and you know there was a, everyone was up in arms about the all the all, all, all the problems um, with, with the festival. But as everyone else backed out, why did you decide to play?
1: i don't know <laughs> i you know i'm i must have been crazy because um it was a it was dangerous it really was i i didn't don't think i thought about that too much and um peter my husband said don't you dare <laughs> don't you dare and um i i was driven in with the um there was a news team it was the Ten Ten wins news team and they had a big car and they stuck my guitar in the trunk and I guess um, you know there was injunctions and everything against um, any artist on, in, on the field would be a $10,000 fine and they would be imprisoned and and, all, and they would never sing again you know all this stuff but I, I don't know I guess there is a part of me that is a, a rebel and those things are kind of inviting.
0: (laughs) You know, the, and the next one he played, I I, want to bring up um, because it it happened in Canada, which was the strawberry fields festival uh, in, in, in Mossport park, just, just outside of Bowmanville, uh, you know, just, just North of Toronto. Um, Do you have any, any fond memories of, of, of playing in Canada at that time?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, that was a regular stop for me, you know, um, Toronto and, uh, all of, all of Canada. I used to tour a lot there. Uh, I guess too, it had a lot to do with the success in England and just kind of came over via England to, um, to Canada. I think Ruby Tuesday was actually a bigger hit in Canada than it was in us. Um, but I, I, remember doing Strawberry Field, I remember what I was wearing. <laughs> I was wearing white. I thought that's pretty amazing. It's different for me, you know, because I usually wear black. But um, I was I was in a white skirt and uh, I was, uh, you know, just became Festival Queen because once I did Woodstock and then Glastonbury and uh, Strawberry Fields and um, it was I became like this well it's oh in fact um, I was supposed to do a concert in New Jersey and the governor at the last minute called it off because they outlawed festivals and Melanie constituted a festival. (laughs)
0: You know, we, uh, I'm going to get to 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 Glassstone in a second. Um, you've you've talked a lot about your your love of you know and, and your success in England, and aft right after uh, Strawberry Fields, you flew over and did the Isle of Wight um, at Afton Down, which was I think had a bigger turnout than than Woodstock. Some estimate eight hundred thousand. And
1: yeah, uh, you know, I wouldn't I, doubt it. It's amazing
0: again it's an outdoor shore but here you are you know playing on a on on a cliff side overlooking some of the most stunning stunning waters uh you know it, it, that side of the Atlantic uh that must have been a hell of an experience Ooh. for you
1: okay there you are oh
0: can Uh-oh. you still can you still hear yeah, me? Yeah, I hear you. Yes, yes. Uh, I was just saying, you know, there there you are, you know, playing on a cliffside overlooking stunning Atlantic waters. That that must have been uh, one hell of an experience for you.
1: Oh, my gosh. It was. I was, um, we went over on a hovercraft uh, to the Isle of Wight, and then, um, we had to take uh, a plane to the site. Uh, it was one propeller <laughs> plane, and, um. Uh, it, it was it was hairy, you know, getting there. It's a, an island, and um, we I finally got there, and the field was. Uh, Donovan had lent me his. Um, it looked like Geppetto's wagon, you know. It was uh, such a sweet little gypsy wagon, and he uh, let me use it while I was um, on the field. So I. Was waiting again. It was one of those things where nobody wanted to follow the who. And um, I don't know what, you know, I, I, okay, I'll do it. So I was, um, I mean, I wished I didn't because their set was so unbelievable. It was so powerful. And I mean, that was right. They were introducing Tommy, you know, and uh, it, you couldn't what could you do after that but um anyway i had met them while i was um you know hanging out back there in the field and uh keith moon said he would oh i went on it was about sunrise and people had gone to sleep and i figured well i'll probably just you know lull them into a deeper sleep and um I, again it was just me my guitar no bands no orchestra no nothing so uh, I I started to sing and little by little I could see heads popping up I didn't see any of the of the landscape or topography I only saw masses and masses of people and heads popping up and and this was. Monumental. It was Jimi Hendrix's last uh, festival, and um, it it was yeah. In in many ways, it was uh, more astounding than Woodstock because it was drawing from all over the world. You know, every every country was represented there, and uh, every everyone knew that it was going to be massive. It was, I think it was was it the second year that it, that it existed anyway um I, I, again i because maybe because i was waking people up you know, they were just heads were popping up and uh, there i was you know singing away and it it worked you know like when sometimes you think ah oh, you know i didn't actually connect but i actually connected and um very fortunate that it did. I had, after that, it was like, I don't know, hit records everywhere in Europe. It was incredible.
0: Well, uh, after that, the, the next summer, you played at what was then known as uh, Glastonbury Fair, or Fire, which was, and that was in 71, the first year um, that Glasto was sort of known as as, as, as Glastonbury. Uh when when you played back then, did 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 you get the sense that this was a bit of a unique and and special festival?
1: Oh yeah, I mean this was the height of magic. You know, it was, and no one can dramatize the, better than the British, really, um, because it, everyone was dressed in the most beautiful layers of, I, I was very fond of an artist, though, of Wolfing, Suleiman Wolfing, and she drew um, these people and they the way they were dressed were, was what I wanted to be, you know, so, uh, and there it was all in front of me, these beautiful uh, people dressed to the hilt in uh only, only the British could do this. You know that really, it was much more beautiful than uh, they had it down in America. America was a lot more handmade, you know, stuff. But in England, I guess they had so much um, to draw from. You could go to any thrift shop and find, you know, gowns from different eras and pieces of fabric and beading and stuff. So. People um, you know, had a lot more of a uh, a palette <laughs> to draw from. So physically it was a beautiful, much more beautiful uh gathering and and people were dancing wildly and uh again I was a solo performer and uh you know, people wondered if they would get it, you know, because but it was it happened again and it, it was truly magical. People were saying things like, you know, the stage was going to lift up and uh, things were going to happen. And um, I, I I, do get to experience those things, whether they're in my head or in my heart. I get to experience all the magic.
0: What was it like going back, you know, uh, in, in 2011 to, to play the, the 40th anniversary?
1: Well, yeah, it was a whole other thing. And that you even call it glasto. That's so ugly. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like something you put in your drain when it's clogged up. <laughs> Pour some of this glasto in your sink and you won't have any clogs. No, I don't. Um, no there was Glastonbury. It, it just has a beautiful ring to it. And uh, yeah, it felt much more like glasto. You know, something you put down the drain and uh, unclog your sink. But people, you know, are really, they go and they have a great time. But festivals in general um, are much more of uh, an event that um, is not so much to sit and experience the music. The music is part of it, but it's, you know, people aren't going there particularly to see, I mean certainly some of them are, but to see a particular act, but uh more to, you know, be at this event that everybody knows about. And yeah, I I um yeah, I'm not I wasn't desperate to get back <laughs> you know, uh, and do it again. But um I just uh, you know it was I'm glad I got to go back and see. And I did meet uh, Michael Evis uh, and he had, the first time he had lent me his, um, his reconverted barn, which he had turned into a living space. And I, because I had come in from, you know, overseas and I was desperately tired and he let me um, use his house. It was very nice. Uh,
0: I know the the next year you had your biggest hit with um, Brand New Key, uh, which I actually read there was a bit of controversy because it, it, it got banned by a few stations right after it, it came out because of some unintended uh, innuendo. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, was...
1: a key, you know, goes into a something. And what could that be? And then there were also other... Um, uh, Somebody said it was a wife swapping uh, key club song. You know, where there was this thing going. I didn't know anything. I was, you know, I'm one of those people where people would tell off color jokes and things. I'd sit there and it would take me about 20 minutes, or somebody would have to explain why it was funny. Um, But I just wrote it. It was a, a stream of consciousness came out immediately um i remembered um i had been on a fast on nothing but water again i I was um i was exploring spirituality and uh that uh, again once you leave your body and have this true experience of watching yourself (laughs) from somewhere else you know that you are not a body right so with that in my head and emotions and being, I went to explore many religions and and forms of being in touch with myself spiritually. So um yeah, I mean, um what what was the question? I'm so sorry. I was uh, thinking about spirituality. Oh, yeah,
0: no, it was I guess it was just you know the sort of the 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 experience of having a a, a song banned
1: oh yeah that's right band yeah well people were reading things into lyrics you know and uh so they read that they read sexual innuendos and and key, okay, key could have referred to a kilo of drugs it was a drug song it was, all, it, was it was accused of being all kinds of things that, in actual fact, I was just thinking about learning how to roller skate and my dad holding the bicycle, you know, and uh, I think it all culminated from being on this fast. And uh, after it was over, this my fasting guru, Dr. Bernard Jensen, uh, who studied many different aspects of healing, including uh, frequency, frequency therapy and color therapy and uh, different personality types that should have different sorts of diets and and, uh, blood types and all of these things. And he um, sort of guided me through this fast. And after 27 days, he thought that it was a good idea that I stop fasting. And um, I was, you know, very, very, you know, Out of it, you know, I mean, you you start uh, seeing the world in a different way. I mean, I was I was mostly didn't look at television, but I remember one night going back to my room and uh, it was midway through the fast, and I was watching this kind of in, 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 a, in kind of um television shows Marcus Welby, which was you know was kind of a a light-hearted uh, humor drama thing on television, and I would never have thought this would reduce me to absolute tears. <laughs> I was sitting there sobbing over a Marcus Welby uh, episode, and I—I um, I think it just brings out lots of different kinds of emotion. That um, you're, you get very in touch with yourself when you don't eat. So I guess you're leaving your body to to a degree, you know, because, um, you know, if you keep going, you won't be there anymore. So uh, anyway, so I was, um, you know, uh, I think that my experiences were so intense during that time that when I came back and I had been go, I was going to go to a flea market and went there like at four in the morning, you know, with my flashlight and uh, give me your dealer's price you know um cuz i love i love old stuff you know mostly because um not for the worth or value but for the, the insight into another era so i i used to love going to flea markets and um this was long ago when flea markets were mostly people's old stuff not you know plastic things <laughs> so um I was coming home from this and I had been on the fast and I had broken the fast very gradually on uh, you know partially grated partially cooked grated carrot and a teaspoon of juice you know very very slowly and Dr. Bernard Jensen said my perfect diet I had been a vegetarian was going to occur to me, and uh, I know this sounds like how could this possibly relate to Brand New Key, but um, I was on my way back and very hungry, and we passed a McDonald's, and I smelled this, I don't know, it, was, it reminded me of a Greece hamburger. I don't know what it was. It, it just brought back this whoosh of being a kid, roller skating. And I wrote the song in maybe 15 minutes, coming home in a car uh, with my little guitar. And uh, it, it was no more than that. Uh, I wrote the whole song one, one sitting, and I, I had no idea what I was talking about. I just knew it was expressing this, this innocence of roller skating and the irony is that it got banned as a a drug sex song
0: but hey but but, you know it's funny i think in a way given that it did get banned for section i know it's very appropriate that it got included uh in one of the best films of the 90s boogie nights oh my uh, god and you know a a film about porn and the soundtrack for that movie was was what was critically acclaimed how did that opportunity present itself for you?
1: I don't know. You know, they, they, they just wanted to use it. And um, a, a, a side note that people don't know is that I ran away from home when I was in high school because I was uh, an oddball. I, well, then they called it beatnik. I was a beatnik. But I was a um An anarchist, a revolutionary uh, from New York sent into the school to disrupt the school. I mean, I was the most shy introvert (laughs) that could exist. But just my, I don't know, my presence, the way I looked and acted um, just brought on these speculations. And uh, I ran away from home because I, I... the pressure was just too bad you know it was really bad so uh, I ran away and I, I did it in style I'm going to tell you I sold a bunch of stuff that I had and I saved up and I got a plane ticket and then it was ID was was not really necessary you, I, they just said what's your name and I was Eve Dane <laughs> I I just made up this very dramatic name, Eve Dane. And um so I, I get on the plane and um uh I don't have a guitar. I decided that would be a dead giveaway, you know, a girl with a guitar because girls didn't travel with guitars. There were very few girls who played guitars. So um in fact there wasn't any except Joan Baez. And I'm not even sure she had come out yet, but when I ran away I was in high school and went on the plane uh, sat next to someone and his name was Robert Ridgely and I I didn't know who he was I didn't watch that much television he he was in a, a TV series called The Gallant Men and we were talking and he said what's your name? Eve Dane and I'm sure he knew instantly that that was a fake name <laughs> you know Being an actor, you know, he probably figured that. And he, what are you going to L.A. for? I said, oh, I'm an actress. You know, he said, oh, really? That's interesting. You know, I'm an actor. I said, oh, that's nice. And You know, again, I didn't know who he was. I didn't care. Um, And he said, and I told him, you know, I wrote songs. He said, hey, you want to sing? And he had a a guitar above in the overhead. And he took it out and we started to um, sing songs and um, we're now we land in LA and he said, uh, Eve, now you really have a place to stay. Right. And I actually didn't, I I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I'm, you know, a girl I'm okay. I'm fine. I have, I had $50 in my pocket. <laughs> I was totally okay. You know, um, but the reality did hit me when he asked me. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I had a phone number of someone I should call when I got to L.A. So um, he uh, he said, you sure now? Uh, I said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm really, I'm good, I'm good. And he looked at me like he didn't really believe me. And um, I went to, um, I, I got out I, and I saw him coming by. I was at a phone booth trying this number which didn't answer and now I'm a little bit worried what am I going to do, you know uh, so he um, he saw me and he said, are you okay? Do you need a ride? I went, well uh, he said, come, come with me, come with me and he told me he, I mean, he had a chauffeur carrying his bags and, and I um, he said uh. Uh, I know the person who runs the Hollywood studio club for girls. And if you're an actress and you're sponsored, uh, she will let you have a room. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, (laughs) that'd be be really great. So um, he took me with a limo to, to this Hollywood studio club for girls. It was a a beautiful house that, um, you know, aspiring actresses could stay for a very a few dollars a day or something and um, you know be safe. So I um I got out and said thank you very much. I never got his number or his he did say Robert Ridgely, but it did again didn't mean anything to me. But anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this is because all these years later, when I saw Boogie Nights, it was dedicated At the end, because he had passed away, in in the middle of making this movie. Wow! And he was in the movie, and I always wondered if he knew that I became Melanie. (laughs) 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 You know, because I never told him uh, my real name. But of course, uh, at the Hollywood studio called Girls, they finally found out that my parents were looking for me, and uh, one day. I had a, 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 you know, we had an intercom in the rooms and I picked it up and the woman had said, um, Melanie. And I went, "Uh uh-huh. And then I realized, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, she called me Melanie. So I went downstairs and sure enough, um, there was a police woman there and they took me to a girl's detention home. and. that was a harrowing experience, but uh, I finally made it back. But all these years later, he's in the movie with my song. It, it was just pretty incredible to have met up again that way.
0: You, uh, of course, you, you mentioned his connection to television and you won an Emmy Award, his biggest awards for television. But you won it for a very interesting thing. You won it. <laughs> You won it for writing the lyrics to a song called "The First Time I Left Forever," which is the theme song for the "Gone Too Soon" TV series, Beauty and the Beast, uh, which predated the, the Disney film by by a few years. Okay. Um, what? How? How did? How does Melanie get involved in sort of this this you know a, a series based on a, a cult French novel?
1: Huh. I didn't even know it came from that. <laughs> I was I was contacted uh, in Hollywood when I was in Hollywood to uh, write lyrics to um, uh, the music. The music that was the theme, and I thought, yeah, I could probably do that. You know, I'd never done anything like that before, and uh, Lee Holdridge had written the, um, vers- the you know the orchestration and. Uh, written the music, so he, I, he actually produced, not produced, arranged uh, "Ruby Tuesday," the original record. It was probably one of the only things we worked on together. Years prior, he was a New Yorker, and he went to LA and became uh, successful and wrote this uh, theme to "Beauty and the Beast." And because he was the musical, uh, you know, arranger for me early on. And he had written this, so I thought, "Oh, this will be nice. You know, we could work together." But it turned out he, he had become an asshole. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is, you know, seems like a lot of people come, go to LA, and that's what happens to them. I don't know, but um, he um, he was fighting that I shouldn't be the person writing the, the, the lyric, and I didn't know this. There are lots of things. You find out later, but he wanted um, somebody much more politically acceptable to have written the lyrics. And anyway, that was going against me, but I didn't know it yet. And then uh, I heard the melody and I instantly came up with the lyric. And that was my big mistake because I, uh, I handed it in. You know, my lyric, my first lyric, I, I felt that it was inspired and it was right. It felt right. And um, first I had heard from the writer and he said, Oh, you did a pickup note because the, the, the melody goes da 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 da. And I went da da da. <laughs> I added that little the first time. Anyway, he didn't like that. And he's no, no. You're changing the the melody. I said, oh, come on, you know, I mean, it's the same thing, really. It's just a instead of da da da, it's da da da. He said, yeah, but that's a pickup note. I don't want that. And I said, oh, well, I don't know what to do about that because the lyric sounds really good. And um, I handed it in to the producer, and the producer said, well, it needs a little more of her point of view. And one of the actors that is more of her point of view and his point of view. And and then it needs to be a little more specific and uh, not as um, ethereal. You know, all these mind torturing comments that, you know, if when you write something, and you know, it's right. It's right. Because like the God voice is telling you it's right. <laughs> you know, you really you can't really argue with that, you know. So, um, but I, you know, was listening, I was trying to, I thought, well, this is good. You know, maybe I can write things for Hollywood and, uh, you know, do, do good that way. So um, I was trying, I was trying to be accommodating. I wasn't, you know, being belligerent or anything. Um, so I kept writing, I had legal pads full of lyrics and I would turn them in, and they'd, no, this is too much here, and that's too much heaviness, and this is too much funniness, and this is too ethereal and too poetic, and not enough this, not enough that. Anyway, I'm on and on, and the, I, I'm swearing these people are trying to torture me. And um, I finally, I had it, and I really had it. I thought, you know what? I know those first lyrics are right. And what I did was I turned them in again. And, you know, this was before computers and emails and they, they wouldn't be able to really, I mean, yes, they could research and find out it was the exact lyric that I turned in the first time, but that isn't what happened. They heard it. I got a call the next day, Melanie, that's it. That's it. You got it. You see all that hard work paid off. And what that really meant was that they wanted me to slave and worry over, over <laughs> lyrics. They want to think you earned your money. So I thought it, later, I thought, you know, if I um ever did that again, I would wait a couple of weeks before I turned it in. <laughs> Even if I wrote it five minutes after I heard the melody, you just wait a, a little bit, you know. Let them think you tortured over it. And um, anyway, I won an Emmy for that song, of <laughs> all things.
0: You know, one—it's—I I just learned this recently. But one of the writers uh, on that show was George R. 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 Martin, who, of course, later wrote um, what would become Game of Thrones. Did you ever get to, to cross paths? Oh my God, or... no! I
1: had no idea. <laughs> wow. No, I—I I probably. I' probably met her because I met everyone on the show uh, the actors, the producers, the directors, everyone so um I'm sure I, I met her, but i I don't have i didn't had no idea that's amazing. well, wow, she's certainly successful. Maybe she'd like me to write the theme song. <laughs> Uh, one,
0: speak, speaking of writing One other thing I wanted to ask you about Was Ace of Diamonds um,
1: Oh
0: Which uh, I, I know was, was based on a series of letters Written by uh, Annie Oakley uh, No, and- no,
1: Calamity Jane
0: Cla- Oh, Calamity Jane, excuse yes, me Yes,
1: we we were kind of arch rivals, we <laughs> I'm not Calamity Jane But I, I felt like Calamity Jane I, I, would, I would have said... Um, I was Calamity Jane and Annie Oakley was more like Linda Ronstadt.
0: Right, (laughs) right. uh, Uh,
1: uh, It was more Hollywood and um, Annie Oakley was much more, um, you know, dressed up in like almost a costume and, and Calamity Jane was a wild woman. She was just a wild, crazy lady
0: and uh I, I i I know it was never fully produced, but you got to do uh staged readings um mm-hmm. where you sort of starred opposite the great Annie golden um and if if people don't know the name, they'll know her as Norma from Orange is the new black and it's I think it was kind of cruel to give somebody with such a great voice the role of a mute character in a TV show but uh not, nonetheless do you have any uh fond memories of working with her
1: um... You know, I don't. I mean, I don't think we got to that place. Um, we had uh, Betty Buckley was the um, one who was going to play Calamity Jane. I played her daughter, who um, she gave up for adoption uh, when, while Bill and her were riding through the plains of, um, you know, the U.S. and uh, she was get, was about to give birth and they they found a cabin and went in. and I guess while Bill kind of freaked out about the whole thing. and he left. He abandoned her and um, she did give birth and Captain Jim O'Neill, who happened to own land, uh, was riding through and uh, heard noises coming from the cabin. And went in and found Calamity Jane and a baby, and he nursed them back to health. And uh, it turned out his wife couldn't have children, and he asked Calamity Jane because she was in you know a dire circumstances, uh, would she be interested in uh, you know having her daughter be raised by he and his wife and Virginia, and so. She did, but it was um, she wanted to write letters to her daughter uh, and have her daughter know who she was when she came of age. So it turned out that she did. She wrote these letters in the form of a diary to her daughter, me. I played that part. And um, uh, when, when Calamity Jane passed away, she the letters were given to the daughter. At that point, the daughter had already been, um, as a lot of women had been put on uh, morphine, which was called anti-hysteria medicine. It just happened to be the time when the women wanted the vote. And so um, I, as that, that threw a little monkey wrench in there, you know, having a bunch of women uh, with their anti-hysteria medicine they weren't going to be too um, proactive in getting the vote, but uh, it happened anyway. So uh, there, uh, Jane, who had been raised very proper in Richmond, Virginia, uh, finds out that her real mother and her real father was Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok. So um, it's quite a story. So, but I, I, and again, we we read and auditioned with a lot of people, and we did a full out production um, in the uh, actors. Uh, oh, I forgot the workspace. That uh, it, it's almost in Broadway. It's almost Broadway, you know. Um, and we we did productions, but I don't. I didn't remember. I don't remember. You know. I'm so sorry because it, I should, but I I don't have a cl- clue baby. but there was another production um, but I don't think it was musical it was uh, I think Jane Alexander read read the letters of uh, Calamity Jane but uh, this was a okay. whole musical so she actually did the um, she was one of the contenders yeah <laughs> well all, all,
0: all, all, all the all that I read was that it was um, it was a reading at the Lincoln Center, I think.
1: Oh yeah. Where were you? That was the very first one. That was where, before. Yeah.
0: Where you, where yeah. you were, where you were the narrator and pop singer, and she, and she was, I guess, Calamity Jane.
1: That's it. Yes, I do remember. Oh yeah, that was before the Michael Bennett workspace. That's what it was. Um, yes. Well, that version. Didn't happen, uh, but we did go on to do another version, and then the producer died, and the the, the rules are very strict about if, uh, if that happens, you have to return all the money that was raised, and it was headed to Broadway. It was Everly was, but then by that time, I had had it, you know, because this was before um, pop and Broadway. Intersected this way before that. You know, this was pop music is definitely not worthy of uh, theater. <laughs> it was the theater, and I was a pop singer, so it was like a stigma. And I, I was getting the catty kind of things that would happen, you know, when people are out to, you know, make it like you're just. Uh, Only you're not. You're not in the theater. You're from another thing. The the funny thing is, I actually had graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, but um, my life took a different turn. I had always sung, but I didn't think you could be a singer unless you were drop-dead gorgeous, and I never thought of myself as that, so
0: what well, uh, well, one final thing in in 2007 uh, the independent said it was hard to disagree that Melanie has earned her place alongside Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell and Marion Faithful in the pantheon of iconic female singers. How do you feel about your your place in particularly like uh, folk music history and and your legacy
1: oh wow uh it's um i don't know i i i it's it's sort of just (laughs) when i when you read those names and i think yeah 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 okay 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 (laughs) okay yeah i'm a, a girl and i sang and i wrote but but um mostly they weren't writers you know i think um I think i uh, i never i didn't really think of myself in a as a gender you know i, I thought of myself as a creator um and and i' I'm, I'm not even you know i'm not say, say implying in any way that i didn't you know i wasn't identifying as something else <laughs> I was i was just um if you get my drift i i was just um I didn't feel like that was a category. It's very odd how the world has gone into categories, like um, female uh, singer under the age of this. And that's one category. Um, it, it's disarming you know, to hear uh, me be in a list of other people because I I would say I'd be more in a list with Randy Newman, you know. But of course he's not a woman, but so what? You know, um, uh, I don't know, this seems to be this almost divisive thing going uh when you hear people say, um, Oh yeah, you were the woman you were the only woman and then the woman and you were a woman and it's like well, so what? You know, can I be in the this- same category as Bob Dylan. I mean, come on, let's get real. I wrote a lot of songs, you know, they did call me the female Bob Dylan, um, because at that point they didn't have a term singer songwriter. So, uh, and again, the singers were the beautiful people with great clothes and they could dance and, you know, had nice movements and stuff and they were performers. And then there were the songwriters, who were the funny-looking people in the back room. And so, to have a person who did both of those things, they they didn't have a term. And Bob Dylan was one of the first people who did, um, you know, sang his his own songs. So they called me female Bob Dylan. I just I just never really thought about being in a, a gender category or an age category. I noticed that with authors now they're they're starting, well, maybe this has been a while. Uh, I was reading authors under the age of 25. I thought, what a strange category. You know, it's like, why do we have to have those categories? I just think, you know, if you write, you write, and if you, you know, and it should all be one category. I I, I just don't quite get it, but um, I mean, that is, wasn't your question, but that is what arose in my head when you asked it, that um, it just seems very strangely divisive, you know, uh, in fact, I was told that um, I, I was I'm. I was. I'm handling my own kind of life, career, independent uh, music, whatever. And I was calling a theater and seeing if I would be able to perform there. And the uh, theater said, "Oh, we're not booking women." He said, the "People don't go to concerts uh, with women as much as men." And I thought, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> what a strange world we live in, but um, you know, but there is this sort of a dividing thing. Uh, just, but I am a woman for sure, and uh, I am a writer and I'm a singer, so I guess I will be clumped together with other women, whether they are similar or not. We, we all have a guitar. Yes. <laughs> I will, I will give you that,
0: yes. Well, uh, as I mentioned, you have been nominated for a Lifetime Achievement Awards at the International Folk Music Festival. Melanie Safka, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot. And um, yeah, it would be really wonderful. I think you have to be um, a member of that society to vote but if you are I hope you will consider me because it would be nice to be the winner of the um, lifetime achievement award um, so oh and I, I think um uh, Gordon Lightfoot is uh, the other living person who's up for a, a lifetime achievement so we, uh, um, we I think he's live- won a lot of awards already <laughs> so I think he could let me have this
0: one. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you you'll you'll, you'll be hard pressed to get Canadians to vote against Gordon Lightfoot, but uh, <laughs> you know, they he they, they we do love him here in Canada. But uh, you know what? You know what? Well, uh, you you're you're just as deserving. So ho- hopefully, uh, people will, will get out there and, and 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 vote for you.
1: Yeah. Well, that would be great. <laughs> okay. All
0: right. Th- thank you, Melanie. Stay safe down there in Nashville.
1: Thank you. Alrighty, Bye-bye. have a good day. Bye bye. You too. Bye.
0: Well, there it is. There you have it. That was my interview with folk singer songwriter Melanie Safka reflecting on her career. In light of her Lifetime Achievement Award nomination. Thank you for sticking with me through that. That does it for me today. The show will probably run once a week for the next little bit. Just while I'm busy at work on this film set. But I thank you for tuning in. Nonetheless, I will see you next time, ciao, for now. I just like to have
1: a lot of sex.